HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Organic Grower School, offering a Cuba agroecology tour in the summer of 2021. Learn more at organicgrowerschool.org. This week on Meet and 3, it's our 100th episode. We're breaking the mold to kick off our mini-series on global trade. Vegetable, fruits, grains, and cooking technique pass from one region to another. And that's interesting that that region transformed that ingredient into their own specialties. There was a time where black pepper was a luxury. And we know that because people were willing to invest huge amounts of money to go to the Spice Islands in order to get uh, pepper. <laughs> you know, stuff we take for granted now. You know, you go into a restaurant and it's free. Tune in to Meet and 3, HRN's weekly food news roundup, wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Inside Julia's Kitchen, the podcast of the Julia Child Foundation for Gastronomy and the Culinary Arts. I'm your host, Todd Shulkin, the Foundation's Executive Director. Our show takes you inside the Foundation's world to meet the talented people we have the great fortune of learning from all the time. On today's show, we welcome Ethiopian chef and cookbook author, Johannes Gabriasis. In today's episode, we're going to talk to Chef Johannes about his passion for Ethiopian food, his IACP Julia Child first book award winning cookbook, and we'll hear his Julia moment. Stay with us. We'll be right back. As always, we launch the conversation with an inspiration from Julia. Julia is perhaps best known for being the person who demystified French food for American home cooks. She was a passionate advocate for how French savoir-faire could help Americans in the kitchen. She was very much a cultural ambassador, and this role came naturally to the wife of a diplomat who had lived many years abroad. Julia was also a passionate advocate for rising chefs and cookbook authors. In this vein, she lent her name to a cookbook award given 
by the International Association of Culinary Professionals, also known as IACP, for the best cookbook by first-time author. The foundation provides further support by supplementing the awards recognition with a $5,000 grant designed to foster the winning author's writing career. In the last two years, the award has gone to Samin Nosrat for the acclaimed Salt, Fat, Acid, Heat, and then to Nazdaravian for her book on Persian food, Bottom of the Pot. And to hear more from both of these terrific authors, check out episode 15 with Samin and episode 54 with Naz. Today, we're shifting our focus to someone with similar passion to Julia for sharing the intricacies and pleasures of, in this case, Ethiopian cuisine. Chef Johannes Gabriesis trained at the Paul Bocuse Institute in Lyon, as well as in restaurants in California. Several years ago, he returned to his hometown of Addis Ababa, Ethiopia, and has taken over as the executive chef at his family's restaurant, Antica. In addition to his interest in marrying traditional Ethiopian ingredients to Western dishes, he also focuses on the health benefits inherent in the Ethiopian diet. He's hosted a cooking show on EBS, Ethiopia's national television network, which you can also watch on YouTube. He is fluent in English, French, and Amharic, and his work has been featured in international publications from The Guardian to Le Monde and on CNN's Inside Africa. Chef Johannes's debut cookbook, Ethiopia, Recipes and Traditions from the Horn of Africa, received a 2020 James Beard Award for Best International Cookbook and the 2020 IACP Julia Child First Book Award for Best First Cookbook. He joins us today to share his passion for Ethiopian food and culture. Welcome to the podcast, Chef Johannes. Thank you so much, uh, Todd. Thank you for having me on your show. It's a pleasure. I'm looking forward to our conversation. I've eaten Ethiopian food, but I know very little about it on any deeper level. And I wanted to start with, given that you have trained in France and you have worked in the States, and now that you're back home in Ethiopia, what would what was the experience in France and the U.S. that's now influencing your cooking, or have you kind of gone back to your original roots in cooking? Well, I would say uh, that um, my education in France and my experience in the U.S. Uh, really shaped my cuisine in terms of technique. Uh, I would say my cuisine is more of a fusion cuisine where uh, I harness the taste of the different Ethiopian endemic and indigenous ingredients uh, and come up with recipes that are friendly for for the global population. So it's Ethiopian inspired, but with a French touch, I would say. Uh, so in that sense, I think uh, the education is really playing a big role. And so you were abroad from Ethiopia for for many years, and I assume also during a time that was very difficult in Ethiopia. When you got back, did you find that eating and dining had changed very much in, in Ethiopia, or had it really stayed very, very much the same? Well, to be honest, I, uh, I moved to France uh, when I was 18, 19 years old. Uh, it's not that I knew extremely difficult times like the 80s. Uh, Ethiopia was doing pretty good already. 
so the, f- the, the eating habit hasn't changed much when I got back because Ethiopian food is very specific in the way it's consumed, the ingredients, the taste, and it's something that has survived for the past 3,000 year plus. So it's a culture that will continue uh, after me, and I hope so, I, and I hope so as well. So why don't you tell us about some of the flavors and techniques and, and defining dishes of Ethiopian uh, food and cooking? Absolutely. Okay, so let's definitely start with injera, which is our um, daily bread. That's how uh, we say it even in our prayers. It's, um, it's, a, very, it's a flat bread uh, made out of teff. Teff is a very tiny uh, grain, uh, glutenless grain, uh, that is very popular and um, widely available in Ethiopia. That consists of our daily bread, and we don't usually we don't use bread much. Actually, we use injera, and all the stews are layered on top of this uh, sour crepe uh, because it's fermented to de- develop a certain elasticity, and it's used um, at the same time to 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 hold the the stews and the different. Uh, chunks that is put on top of the of the crepe, so it serves at the same time as bread and that's at the same time as our utensil. So everything is hit, e- eaten by hand. And then some of uh, one of the other things I think anyone who's eaten Ethiopian food in in America or abroad has probably had injera because it's kind of such a staple. But some of the other things, right? There's a key spice mixture and there are a couple key ingredients, right? Correct. So when it comes to spice, we have barbare, which is uh, the most important Ethiopian spice, uh, very complex uh, nature in, uh, and in, prepa- in preparation. Uh, um, it uses a, a very specific type of uh, chili called barbare itself. It's uh, quite big, very red, and it's used to make this, uh, this spice called, uh, again, barbare, which is used in the making of spicy stews like dorowat, like uh, bagwat. These are, um, it's not just um, used uh, as, um, it's, it's actually used in quantity in a stew, and it's cooked long hours until it loses the, um, the heat. So it's a, it's a very interesting spice, to be honest. Other than that, we have meat meat, of course, which is very, very spicy, and we use it as a, as a dipping, more or less. Um, and then indigenous um, spices that, it, that are specific to Ethiopia, like kosarat, which we only found a Latin name for. Uh, Nigella and ajoan are very common in Ethiopia as well. So that is a culture that uses a lot of spice, uh, side to side to, um, to injera, which makes it quite specific too. And bavere is, it's a blend, right? It actually has many different ingredients. I mean, you mentioned the, like the chili that is bavere, but right, it, it, to make it is, it's a bit complex and it's usually, right, made in like large volumes and then, is that correct? Absolutely. So it's a, it's a, it's a big tradition and celebration in Ethiopia, actually, especially the, the month of October, November, December, these are the time where bavere is produced uh, in mass in every neighborhood. And there, there, especially back in the days, there are several steps uh, involved in making a decent barbare. From the wet phase where uh, uh, wet spices like uh, rue seeds, uh, rosemary, uh, garlic, onion, these kind of spices are um, pounded together and mixed with the barbare. 
um, put in a paste form and let to, uh, to mature for about three days where it's sprinkled with uh, honey wine and very fresh herbs like um, Ethiopian basil, very similar to Thai basil. And that allows to develop a certain uh, scent, taste, uh, complexity. And after three days, basically another uh, dry phase um, takes place where dry spices are added for extra flavor. So you can see it's a very complex and very interesting um, tradition. And then when it's finished, is it a paste or it actually is dried enough that it then goes back to sort of being a powder or is pounded into a powder? Oh, it's sent to the, to the meal to become a powder. So once the wet fade is complete, it's dried and the dry spices are added um, before it's all put together and uh, powdered. So this sounds like something that's quite difficult to make at home if you want it to be really adventurous. But I feel like you do have a recipe for it in the book. Absolutely. So you can also try it at home with simpler spices, trying to get something similar. But of course, if you want to prepare it very traditionally, it's a, it's a long process. You have to be very patient. You have to be very knowledgeable. But like any specific regional produce, like champagne, I think these are items that you'd want to have from the location, if you can. But then if you want to experiment, definitely there's a lot of ground. And this might be an industry question that you don't want to reveal, but at your restaurant, for example, do you make your own or do you get it from a very specialist you know, supplier that you love who you think makes the, the best? So for my restaurants, of course, my, my, my mom makes the best barbari. <laughs> so I always get a extra supply from there because her knowledge is way more than mine and she's the one who, who guided me in the process of writing this book as well. Uh, so I never adventure in making my own barbari. I don't really have the time for it. But, um, but definitely for the book, uh, we, we went the extra mile to see what would be the best way to prepare barbari. Wow. And, and do you think that's true for a lot of chefs in Addis Ababa? They have a, a secret mom supplier of their <laughs> I hope so. Honestly, I hope so. You know, uh, we, um, we're slowly forgetting these beautiful traditions that we have. And a lot of traditions are getting marginalized and forgotten. For instance, the wet phase nowadays is not common anymore. People don't have the time, so they're mostly urged in preparing Burberry that is extremely spicy whereas it should be more complex. And I think it's uh, an industrialized, fast lifestyle that is bringing these changes. And let's not forget population growth also impacting on ingredient availability. So very, very various factors are coming into play now, I guess. And then also from, from looking at the book, um, it seems like chickpeas and lentils are, are very staple um, parts of the cuisine, but they kind of end up in dishes that are distinct from maybe the Italian or um, Middle Eastern ways of preparing chickpeas and, or lentils. Correct. So we have a very popular um, identity food, I would say, called shiro, which is... Um, um, which is... Um, a common food for every class, so it represents Ethiopia as a whole, I think. And uh, what makes it really special is that it's actually powdered to make um, uh, a sauce-looking stew that is eaten directly by, with injera. 
It's very simple, very tasty to make, um, and everyone loves it. That's what makes it really special. Uh, we also use it split and whole, so the preparation for stews can vary from powder to split uh, grains to, to whole grains. That, that is also possible to prepare in forms of stews. I see. I, I thought also traditionally, and I wanted to ask you this particularly in terms of what you were just talking about, in terms of the changing pace of life and old traditions, um, I'm assuming everyone knows this, but I'll just state it so everyone is up to speed. But coffee is a staple crop in Ethiopia, and in many ways, Ethiopia is the, in some ways, center of the invention of drinking coffee. And so it's also very much part of Ethiopian culture. So I wanted to ask you first to kind of describe what is the traditional way coffee is drunk in Ethiopia and about the sort of ceremonies. But then I was also curious for you to kind of like how many people, especially in Addis Ababa, are, are doing that on a daily basis? Uh, thank you for asking me this question, actually, because it's quite important for uh, my country to claim this. Uh, Ethiopia uh, discovered coffee. Um, Kaltis, uh, which is the story, that's how it goes, discovered coffee through uh, the goats. Uh, he was a goat herder and that's how he discovered it. But once coffee was discovered in Ethiopia, it was largely traded in the, in the Middle East. That's why we call it coffee Arabica. But to be fair, it should have been called coffee Ethiopica. Now, <laughs> aside that ego side, um, I would say Ethiopia is uh, coffee is very Ethiopia is, is very important to Ethiopia as we drink it every day uh, everyone has access to Jebana coffee which is a traditional coffee um, and even the coffee type is extremely sweet very different from what I've tasted around the world and it's very addictive I would say um, there's a whole tradition behind where uh, several um, Cups are prepared from the same uh, jabana, which is a clay pot that makes uh, the coffee from Abol to Tona to Baraka. These are the different steps in enjoying coffee and the whole ceremony can take from two to three hours. So not everyone can do that, but everyone has time to at least drink coffee, one or two coffee traditionally during their day. And so in the modern sort of pace of life that you were talking about, do people drink that same style of coffee, but it's it's sort of the time-consuming preparation is done by someone at a cafe and then they just rock up and get it? Or is it also something that um, actually is kind of going by the wayside and they're drinking a Starbucks-like coffee because they don't have time? So it's uh, actually the culture beautifully uh, adapted to... Uh, to the current lifestyle where uh, bigger pots of traditional coffee is prepared in advance and reheated in the jebana. And the taste is actually um, authentic. And since it's made with uh, clay, it has a very specific uh, taste as well. Um, so yeah, people can actually get traditional coffee within five minutes. And in that case, is it actually, though, because the preparation technique is more involved, people would, would buy it from a vendor rather than make it at home, at least on a given workday? On a given workday, absolutely. But keep in mind, Ethiopia is a very tradition-based uh, country, and during the weekend, everyone has time to make a traditional coffee, at least at home. 
and they would do it two hours or there are little shortcuts that everyone has. This is how you would spend your day with your friends and family. So usually during the weekend, people have time to spend hours chatting and eating and um, welcoming people. Um, that tradition still exists and uh, still goes on strong during the weekend. Well, I'm going to tell you a small story that I think you'll appreciate and find heartwarming that we, um, my family, we went to Montana, which I, I don't know how well you know the states, but is kind of more of a rural state and very sparsely populated um, in the Rocky Mountains. And the we were staying at a house from a family that was, you know, local to Montana, but they'd been to Ethiopia. And so everything was quite rustic, but they weren't there. We were staying in their house, but we were very surprised that they had a very elaborate coffee maker and the best coffee. Um, and it turned out because they'd been to Ethiopia, it had changed their coffee drinking habits fundamentally, and they couldn't tolerate cheap American coffee anymore. So it's that powerful. It is actually, and several cities prepared differently. Uh, for instance, my favorite coffee is in Lalibela. I can get 10 cups of coffee and still crave more. Uh, the way it's done is very sweet, it's very light. Um, different areas have different tradition of, around coffee as well. In Jima, you can get coffee snacks, coffee that's been cooked for several hour, uh, hours in uh, spiced, uh, clarified butter that has become like um like uh, like a snack and it's it's pretty amazing what what ethiopians have done around coffee Ooh, that sounds amazing i love coffee flavored anything but you keep saying it's sweet but it is it naturally sweet or it is sweetened it is naturally sweet but at the same time uh, uh, sugar can also be used and it's quite popular in ethiopia uh, another way of consuming coffee in Ethiopia is with uh, a little bit of salt and spiced clarified butter as well. Yeah, well, I want to talk about this later when we come back from the break about uh, sugar in Ethiopian diet and, and how it's not part of the tradition. So I just wanted to clarify that when you're generally what you were referring to as a natural sweetness rather than you, like Turkish coffee, which is, you know, sweetened heavily. Uh, yeah, but... Uh, you can actually use proper sugar in your coffee, and that's actually quite common. But uh, we don't we don't have a dessert tradition, not a tradition where we don't consume sugar at all. We still use sugar, not in large uh, quantities, but we still do. And so often, people will drink sweetened coffee. Absolutely, yeah. Again. All right. We're going to be back in a second to talk more with Chef Johannes, specifically about his award-winning cookbook, Ethiopia, Recipes and Traditions from the Horn of Africa. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by Organic Grower School, offering a Cuba agroecology tour in the summer of 2021. Agroecology is the study of ecological systems as they apply to agriculture. Join Organic Grower School on their tour of Cuba this summer to learn more firsthand. During this trip, you'll participate in and observe how the Cuban agricultural community has fully embraced agroecology. You'll learn why Cuba is considered one of the leading global experts in agroecological methods. What's included in the Cuba Agroecology Tour? 
the nine-day itinerary includes lodging, transportation around the island, and two to three meals per day. You'll be led by a professional tour guide with agricultural experience through Havana, Vinales Valley, and the Las Terrazas Biosphere Reserve. Scholarships covering up to 75% of the trip are available, with farmers being prioritized. Learn more at organicgrowerschool.org. Welcome back. We're talking to Johannes Gabriesis, the executive chef at Antica in Addis Ababa, about his cookbook, Ethiopia, Recipes and Traditions from the Horn of Africa, the 2020 winner of the IACP Julia Child First Book Award. So, Chef Johannes, I felt like the book is beautiful and very informative and just engrossing. It's very much a love letter to Ethiopia. And one of the things you do in it is kind of explore different regions and contrast them. And I was kind of curious if you could take us through not all of them, because that would probably take up more time than we have, but some key differences or things that stand out or you would like people to understand about the the regional differences. So um, Ethiopia is a big country um, with a... Um, with a lot of people from different origins as well. Uh, we have more than 80 ethnic groups, which means 80 different cultures within the same country. It's a big country, so it has different climates. Um, one, of the, the, one of the lowest uh, points on earth that is uh, inha- inhabited is in Ethiopia and Afar. So survival in these kind of different climate uh, demands a certain adaptation. So there is uh, differences between the regions based on the ingredients, the people, uh, and uh, how hard it is to live there. Um, So there is so many factors that that come into play that created um, so many different know-hows and um, tastes. I could tell you about um, know-hows that really impressed me um, that I've never seen around the world. For instance, you'd go to Lalibela, they, they make this um, very thin oat bread, uh, just like in Jara, uh, but since it's very difficult to, to have the same texture, um, basically what they do is they gather kids around the griddle to whistle and create that same texture and sound vibration is used in the making of food. You would go to Afar, you'd find um, uh, their know-how around goats, goat skin and how that is used to cool the water in the very hot regions of the country. So I think each region has so many different things to offer. It's very hard to classify uh, what and where, I guess. There's so many stories I can tell you. Um, I, I could just give you an initiation to Ethiopian culture rather than... Um, generalizing everything. And one thing I was struck by, right, is Ethiopia is actually landlocked, um, but then you have the Nile. And maybe you could just talk about how seafood does and do, and fish do, does and does not enter the Ethiopian diet. So absolutely. Since 1991, since Eritrea and Ethiopia parted ways, uh, Ethiopia doesn't have any uh, shore. So our fish consumption drastically 
uh, reduced since then. Uh, physical critical perception in Ethiopia is um, limited to very basic recipes and usually frozen fish. But um, that tradition is changing now that the country is opening up, um, that uh, the neighboring countries are, um, there is peace treaty with every country uh, surrounding Ethiopia and that's really changing the culture now. I'm even opening right now my own fish specialized restaurant, so I can tell you it's a very interesting market there. Mm. Uh, um, what else can I tell you? Uh, I can and tell and you. traditionally, going back, because as you mentioned, it's a 3,000 year old culture, was um, when, when Ethiopia did have a seafront, was there more of a kind of sea eating culture? Or it was, um, like I noticed in the book, you had perch that comes from the Nile and freshwater fish. Or did it used to have more, or it's, it's not a sort of history that, that's um, understood? So to be honest, in Ethiopia, in the, currently uh, in the different lakes in Ethiopia, there's more than 200 fish species. But uh, in terms of what, what are the type of fish that is uh, mostly consumed, it's we're limited to catfish and tilapia and nile perch so um, mainly because it's uh, easier to catch and uh, but what is quite impressive is when you go to smaller cities where there are lakes uh, you'd see that there is a fish uh, consumption habit uh, and culture in those specific regions so it's the lack of the product that is uh, reducing our interest to towards it. Uh, and I think there will be a lot of change now, especially. I see. And I, I also know that you have an interest in sort of healthy eating or, and, and maybe you can define healthy however you want, but I was just curious for you to, because I noticed that connection of things you'd said, but that also you can see that in the cookbook that a lot of Ethiopian dishes are, you know, based in chickpeas or lentils or kind of either naturally vegetarian or close to it. What's your take as sort of, how do you describe how the Ethiopian diet is inherently healthy? I would say um, religion plays a major role in that aspect. Um, Ethiopia is mostly a uh, Christian. Nowadays, pretty much 50-50 Christian and Muslim. And, um, but way back in the days, when Ethiopia was fully Christian and the Ethiopian Orthodox Church was very powerful, still is by the way, there was um, um, there's a fasting season in Ethiopia that is very specific to Ethiopia, which is about 55, which is about 200, two-thirds of the year, about 220 days out of the year, where it's fasting, with the biggest fast being about 55 days. And usually when you fast, you fast until 3 p.m. and then you eat. So because of the fasting season, um, we developed a lot of vegetarian and recipe, vegetarian and vegan recipes where any animal product is not used. Um, so that's, that's because of um, a religion in position that this, um, this exploration of vegetarian dishes came within Ethiopian food. And I think it's a, it's a very interesting approach to food because we really love uh, uh, non-fasting food. Ethiopia loves meat, but religion imposes that. And thank God, this way <laughs> we still keep 
some of the cattles that we have. <laughs> That's really fascinating because I was struck by something in um, one of the Joya Child Foundation's advisor, but who's also a accomplished uh, historian and cookbook writer and expert on, on, on Russia in general, but also Russian food. And she wrote a book, I think it's called The Great, um, it's called Beyond the North Wind, just turning around to look at it. And it's specifically about, she was looking for the most ancient or longstanding representation of Russian food, and she went to the Arctic Circle to find it. But one of the things that she found in looking at the most traditional Russian food that isn't heavily influenced by other cultures was that it also revolved around fasting, and which I think relates to the same ancient Orthodox Christianity that both countries would have been exposed to in different ways and, and probably, but I, I, have you ever encountered that before? Um, so now this is a, a very specific example. I'm just learning from your experience. So I think it's really cool. Um, but I would say uh, every religion brings uh, its own uh, uh, pressure to gastronomy. For instance, uh, uh, Muslim uh, Islam in Ethiopia brought the, the very small sweets that we have, because we are not a country that consumes a lot of dessert, but with Islam and um, the Middle Eastern culture, we have a lot of mushabak, baklava, uh, halawa, sweets like uh, these uh, in cities like Harar, the Redawa, which is mostly Muslim. So I think every religion plays a certain role in defining uh, uh, eating habits in a specific part of the world. And do the fasting seasons of Ramadan and the Orthodox Christian fasting, are they at different times of year or do they overlap as well? They don't overlap much, but uh, it's a few days apart. Usually it's um, one after the other. Uh, but I think that's, that's really cool because there is a support in both uh, communities. So usually when there's Ramadan, we join our Muslim friends for iftar, which is an amazing uh, way to bond with our friends and during uh, um, Christian uh, fasting we have our Muslim friends showing up for uh, our celebrations as well so I think that's really cool that is that yeah no obviously when both cultures fasting is a, a part it's a lot easier to kind of respect and admire and celebrate it absolutely and I was just curious if you know, you certainly mention how Ethiopia also maybe in America is, is well known for having an ancient Jewish population that is largely gone from Ethiopia. But I was curious if there's still any remnants of uh, in the food and or dishes from the time when it was heavily or predominantly Jewish, or is that so long ago? Or do you think that actually Ethiopians influenced what is now the common food in, in places like Israel? I wouldn't really know. I'm not very knowledgeable to, to answer that question. But uh, in terms of the Jewish influence in uh, Ethiopian food, uh, it's not very common. Um, and so do you, do you think as far as you know or what you were finding, whatever that was is kind of not necessarily erased, but not present or not, not really... Marginalized, yeah. forgotten. Yeah. Yeah, no, that I mean, that's what I kind of figured from from looking at it. And I don't I was just curious your perspective or if you've come across it. And I think I'm correct that while there was this 
ancient history and a Jewish population that there are, most of the Ethiopian Jews have left. Correct, correct. Uh, they're called the Falasha, and mostly uh, they're in, in uh, Israel or around the world. Um, so we don't have much of that culture uh, remaining, but I will definitely dig deeper. Um, that is definitely uh, something to keep. And let's switch gears and talk about the pandemic. And I was just curious to hear from you how things are in Addis Ababa and how that's impacted your restaurant or um, w- sort of what's the state of the affairs given COVID? So uh, Ethiopia is managing COVID pretty, uh, uh, pretty well, even though right now a lot of people are neglecting the um, security measures and going back to a more normal lifestyle. So, yeah, um, I would say in terms of impacting businesses, I, everyone is impacting this uh, pandemic. So it's always a drama for, for everyone and the food industry as well. Um, uh, me, surprisingly, uh, we're operating slightly differently. We're currently opening a couple of restaurants. Uh, so uh, we're hoping to, to, um, to change um, certain things. So uh, I, I think 2021 is uh, looking brighter than 2020. Um, but I think a lot of businesses are still struggling. So and the hospitality industry is extremely impacted by the pandemic in general. And have you have have there been restrictions on you've had to close or just do social distancing measures or have you had this same sort of you've been closed and then or been forced to close and then allowed to reopen? Where are you? What have you been through and where are you now? Speaking about the restaurant. So we were uh, forced to close to close first, then um, to open, but with uh, a few seats uh, apart. As in certain seats, you can't sit in a, on certain seats so that you can keep a certain distance. So that still applies. Uh, so uh, security measures in, and hygiene measures are also applied in the restaurant where you have sanitizers available at every table. Um, um, usually you are forced to wash your hand when you go to supermarkets and public spaces as well. So there are measures. Mm, but we're hoping that the uh, vaccine will come in time as well. And has the health system in Ethiopia been managed to hold up, or is just the way that, that at least when you look across the country, the way people live, they, they were not getting a lot of service from the health service to begin with? I would say COVID is impacting uh, uh, Ethiopia, I guess, differently, or I wouldn't... I wouldn't really know how to say this, but uh, there's there, we don't have as much debt as in um, as the U.S., for instance. Uh, I don't know if it's the climate. I don't know what's uh, controlling it, but the spread is much less, and even the hospitals are doing okay. Um, to the point that a lot of people are going back to their normal habits. That's how much. People are not feeling threatened anymore. So it's definitely a, a point of weakness. I guess we have to be careful. Um, but the reality is what it is right now. Uh, and I, we hope that we will continue the same way, especially that it's summertime now in Ethiopia. So I don't know if the climate really impacts, but I, I'm hoping it, it is. 
Well, that seems to be a supposition that people are trying to sort of piece together these things. And it seems like for whatever reason, warmer climates are faring better. But as you say, we'll just have to see. But I'm glad to hear that it is is not as catastrophic as it's been in, in other countries. And um, fingers crossed. Absolutely. Absolutely. Can you tell us uh, about your plans for the grant that, that comes from the foundation with the Julia Child First Book Award? Absolutely. So now we're planning to have the Amharic edition of the book because I think it's really important to um, not only um, um, expose or um, show the world what we have, but to actually uh, preserve it so that the next generations can benefit from the health benefits and taste of Ethiopian food. So I uh, want to have the Ethiopian edition, the local edition, with the same quality print to be available for a much more fairer and more affordable price for the local community. At least this way, I'm hoping um, it would be a reference book uh, so that Ethiopians want to preserve their tradition and will focus on the food. And we're delighted to hear that. I think that's fantastic. What I don't know is anything about the Ethiopian cookbook market. So is Ethiopian cooking traditions generally not printed in cookbooks because they're passed down in families and cookbooks are mostly foreign editions or what's the... Absolutely. That's exactly it. And usually uh, local print is not the same quality as the one you've seen with with Ethiopia. So getting um, it printed internationally with that kind of quality is very expensive. But with the help of our publishers, we manage, we're managing to reduce the price for the local edition so that we can support the community in this aspect. And does that mean actually it would also be significant that there actually aren't a lot of, at least at that quality, you know, what many people would use to as, you know, nice cookbooks, there actually aren't that many Ethiopian in, in Amharic uh, language cookbooks? There are a couple of books. I'm not saying they're inexistent, but the quality is not there yet. So, so this would be significant as a sort of beautiful preservation. The printing quality, absolutely. The printing quality and apparently the content too, since we just won a couple of awards this year. Well, that's great. Well, we're excited about that. Not that any of us could read it, but (laughs) I I think that was a a completely fitting and wonderful use of the grant. So uh, thank you for that. No, thank you. Thank you for the grant. Well, look forward to hearing how that goes. After the break, Chef Johannes is going to share his Julia moment. Get in touch. Send us an email or a voice memo to contact at juliachildfoundation.org or better yet, Tweet us at JuliaChildJCF and let us know what you think about today's show or share your ideas for future guests. The new book of Julia's quotes, People Who Love to Eat Are Always the Best People and Other Wisdom, is out now in hardcover and ebook from Knopf. Ask or search for it at your favorite bookseller. Stay with us. We'll be right back. When you flip anything, you really... You just have to have the courage of your convictions, particularly if it's sort of a loose mass like this. Well, that didn't go very well. See, when I flipped it, I didn't, I didn't have the courage to do it the way I should have. But you can always pick it up, and if you're alone in the kitchen, who is going to see? From Julia's immortal words, we move into our last segment, which we call the Julia Moment. Here's when we ask our guests to share their favorite Julia memory, moment, 
or how she might have inspired them in their career. Okay, Chef Johannes, what's your Julia moment? Uh, okay, it's hard. I'll be honest with you. Um, until I received the award, I wasn't really familiar with uh, Julia Child. But then I did some digging and I saw that there's certain similarities or certain aspect that um, that that is similar in a way, that is inspiring me in a way. And I would say, uh, you know, in Ethiopia, I, I had this TV show called Chef Johannes Culinary and Lifestyle TV show in Amarik Chef Johannes Kenyat, where we traveled around Ethiopia looking for the best food practices. And that's how I got to discover the different traditions in the country. And from that, I would go back to my kitchen to create something new, inspired from what I've seen in terms of uh, ingredient or, or know-how. And usually, um, we covered every region for about a month, uh, seeing different recipes and ingredients. And at the end of the month, we invited an ambassador of a, of a country in, in, the, in the kitchen to cook with, a, with me. So to create an Ethiopian-inspired recipe with, uh, with, the, with the ambassador's favorite recipe from his own country. This way, we were fusing uh, recipes and hoping to promote Ethiopian ingredients and Ethiopian no, uh, taste. So in that sense, I think um, Julia Child played a big role in introducing French cuisine to the world um, and to using it uh, on a daily basis. And I'm, I'm trying to, to, um, to do that with Ethiopian food. No, I think that I think that's a great connection. And, you know, in in many ways, Julia was a huge pioneer in that kind of food television as a way to, you know, both foster an appreciation for delicious and good food, but also to foster appreciation for understanding. And, and I think I'm right, because I've seen one of those episodes, you're talking, these were ambassadors from a given country like Japan or America or France, to Ethiopia. So they were already in Ethiopia representing their home countries, right? Absolutely. And these were ambassadors cooking as well. So usually the diplomatic community and their own embassy would be interested in discovering this food and how it can be used with Ethiopian ingredients and an Ethiopian chef. So yes, we, we, um, we did um, an amazing dessert recipe with the French ambassador. We did a uh, uh, a traditional recipe with the Canadian ambassador, the Italian ambassador made this amazing dessert uh, that looks like pasta as well. Um, they all had uh, something amazing to bring to the table and that moment of fusion and I would say gastronomic diplomacy was uh, very interesting for the show and uh, for the audiences. Well, I think that's, for someone who wasn't familiar with Julia, I think that's a great spiritual connection because not only I think does that take her example and apply it, you know, several generations later. But it's also something I could see Julia wanting to ask you a million questions about because she would have been tremendous, as she would say, tremendously interested in it. So that's terrific. Thank you. Thank you so much. Well, thanks for joining us today. That's all we have time for. We appreciate it. And uh, I I would definitely, um, I think this is our first episode with someone live from Ethiopia. Thank you so much uh, for having me. Thank you so much for the award. I really look forward to having the American edition and showing you uh, uh, our results. 
Well, it's our pleasure to provide the grant. And of course, the award is from the jury at IACP, but um, I know what you meant. And just wanted to clarify that <laughs> for anyone who was getting confused or was going to write in. And uh, we're delighted you could be here. The book is Ethiopia, Recipes and Traditions from the Horn of Africa from Interlink Books. Ask or search for it at your favorite bookseller. He's at Chef underscore Johannes on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And Johannes is Y-O-H-A-N-I-S. For the latest from the foundation and about new podcast episodes, it's at Julia Child on Facebook and at Julia Child Foundation on Instagram. It's at Julia Child JCF. And I'm at T. Shulkin on Twitter. The Julia Child audio clip from The French Chef is used with permission from our friends at WGBH. Thanks to my co-producer at the foundation, Lauren Salkeld, and our sound engineer at Heritage Radio Network, Amanda Wang. Our theme song is New French Horn by Novi Valtorni. We are on the air on Heritage Radio Network on Thursdays at 4 p.m. Eastern, 1 p.m. Pacific, with downloads available soon after wherever you find your podcasts. We look forward to bringing you back into the Foundation's world next time on Inside Julia's Kitchen. This program is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter. Our handle is at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com forward slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, and more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the AHRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.